Also, I've been asked by the bookstore to uh, remind you that uh, the Forward Day by Day, which is put out by the Forward Movement publication, uh, which um, has daily meditations to with the daily lectionary of the Episcopal Church in morning prayer. Um, it's a great honor in a, in a very small world to be asked to write these, and I was asked to write uh, the ones for November, December, January this year. And so uh, I am the author of the forward day-by-day day for uh, November, December, January of this year. The tradition, which I sort of like, is that they never identify the author. Um, it says always some hint about who it might be in, in the small world. There's always a great question about who wrote this forward. Uh, it says... Uh, the author of this issue of Forward Day by Day, Dean of a Cathedral in the Southwest. <laughs> it is permissible, though, to tell you that I did write it, and they are available um, in the bookstore. I don't know how much they are. I know how much you get for writing them. You can tell um, the value placed on this by the publishers, they are 60 cents. It was a real labor of love. I wrote most of them in Michigan this summer, and uh, about 40 of them, there are 90 meditations. I wrote 40 of them in Michigan, and then I wrote the other uh, 45 or so on sabbatical. So. Um, it's quite an effort to write 90 meditations and not repeat yourself because the same person's going to be reading them for 90 days. Um, the only way I could pull that off was by um, not saying anything important. It was easy to... <laughs> I've, all, I've long been fascinated by Kurt Vonnegut for many reasons, um, particularly his outlandish great sense of imagination and creativity. Uh, sometime in the early 70s I read a book by him entitled Breakfast of Champions in which he did an interesting thing. He freed all of his characters. He gave all of the characters that he had created out of his own unconscious and brought into the collective consciousness of his readers he freed them and said, you all are now free um, in some kind of uh, literary emancipation proclamation. I've always been fascinated by that concept. Now, what I'm going to do today publicly is free two characters out of my own biography. I'm going to do with them as Christ did with Lazarus, unbind him, let him go. A little uh, momentary evolution about how these characters came uh, into my own consciousness and my memory, but uh, how it occurred to me only yesterday um, about how influential they had been. The first occurred to me because of uh, the lectures I was doing for the Mental Health Association on Friday night and Saturday, and yesterday it came to me as if 
on a midnight clear that Gerald Mullins, who lived down the street from us in Drumride, Oklahoma, had given me my first super ego religious instruction that I really have never quite gotten over. Now, before I rehearse with you that religious instruction out of the character in my own story, Gerald Mullins, who lived at 128 North Skinner, Drumright, Oklahoma, pre-zip code. In the lecture on Friday night, I said, impassioned and inspired, that one of the darknesses of religion is the assumption that behavior is a necessity for the approval of God. In other words, that God rewards us or punishes us on the basis of our behavior. And I said, that's not true. I was speaking with a friend of mine afterwards, and he said, of all the things that you said on Friday night, the one thing you said that nobody believed was that God doesn't reward and punish. Nobody really believes the scandal that the rain falls on the just and the us unjust. I'm going to watch today and see. <coughs> that the rain falls on the just and the unjust, so the scripture says from the lips of our Lord, and also that God loves us equally without condition not on the basis of merit or works but out of God's own sovereign unilateral unconditional love and nobody believes that that is the gospel I mean if you're interested in a kernel that you could say is the gospel that is the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ read Paul Paul of Tarsus. <laughs> when I said that, you looked as if, I think I will. <clears throat> Who is he? <laughs> he wrote um, 13 of those 27 books of the New Testament. Uh, so on the basis of that, uh, my friend saying, which I think is, has truth also, Nobody believes that, Pittman, that we still are motivated primarily out of the need for approval. Parents, peers, and God is the sort of ultimate authority. And even though you as an authority, Pittman, speak authoritatively, appealing to the highest authority, saying that you cannot earn or deserve God's love, it's a gift or a free gift, it warms one momentarily uh, in the morning, but nobody really believes it. Gerald Mullins. <clears throat> if I were to pick a Jacob and Esau, it would be Gerald and I. I being the smooth one, he being the hairy one. I huddling in the tents with Mother Gerald Mullins out hunting and gathering. 
Gerald um, lived, as I said, on the same street on Skinner. If you remember, we lived on Skinner before we moved on to Jones because when my father moved to northern Oklahoma to take over the territory for a DX oil company, he couldn't find a house anywhere during the war except in Drumright, and the only house he could find was a small rent house down on Skinner. It was referred to then, and I suspect even now, as a shotgun house. You remember that got that name because you could shoot a gun off on the front uh, porch and it would go all the way through the house. Um, it had uh, two bedrooms and uh, a living room and a dining room and a kitchen. A shotgun house, and in those shotgun houses on Skinner lived Gerald Mullins, and Gerald Sr., of course, was his father, and, and Gerald Sr. drove big trucks. I don't remember now exactly what he did when he drove off in those, but I know that he started them up early in the morning and he let them warm up. Uh, he would, as my mother said, race that motor uh, for an hour and uh, they would sputter and spit and finally take and then he would let them warm up. The Mullins were of a different socio-economic background, therefore their values and tastes were somewhat different from ours. They uh, were the kind who preferred, rather than having their refrigerator in the kitchen, it be on the front porch. <laughs> now, <clears throat> I think I know the secret of that because Gerald Sr. Uh, would sit on the front porch of his shotgun house in a lawn chair, canvas in those days, and in the evening when he came in from racing his motor all day around the oil fields and then would park the truck up in his front yard. That was my mother's favorite part of his <laughs> cultural pattern. He would sit on the front porch and drink beer, which solves the question as why uh, the ice box, we called it then, was on the front porch, I uh, presume. Being of a different socio-economic background, therefore carrying different values and tastes from us, they also went to a church which was called the Free Will Baptist Church. I was 14 before I drove by and saw that it was F capital F-R-E-E-W-I-L-L, -L, Baptist Church. And for the way Gerald said it, I thought it was free wheel. <laughs> I always thought that, that probably that church had more appeal, the free wheel Baptist Church. <laughs> We go to the Free Wheel Baptist Church, Gerald would say. And Gerald gave me lots of information because he was a hunter and gatherer and I was fascinated by him. He was about four years older than I, which made him two years older than my brother, the colonel. And therefore, he knew more than even my brother. And being a hunter and gatherer and I, a smooth man hanging around the tents with my mother, he was out hunting and gathering and he could do things with his hands. I suspect. To this day, Gerald Mullins is a hunter and fisherman uh, and a tinkerer. He probably does things with his hands. I bet he can 
tie flies. I bet he can make uh, fishing lures. I bet he can probably take a shotgun apart and put it back together. My guess is he fills his own shells with shot. That's the kind of guy Gerald Mullins was. He could go out with us as we used to go regularly out to Barrel Springs, and uh, he could identify flowers and plants. He knew the names of trees. He could do things with his hands like make rafts uh, and let them loose on Uchi Creek. He was a, a man of the land. Even in those days, he had the beginnings of a small a protrusion just above his belt. It was the beginning of that chronic disease that my boys call the Dunlap disease. That's where your stomach has Dunlapped over your belt. <laughs> now I suspect Gerald Mullins this day has, by this time, pernicious Dunlap disease. Now, Gerald I was lecturing us one day out in the countryside as he fashioned a trap in which he was going to catch a rabbit. And he caught a rabbit in that trap. He's also the guy, the first guy I ever saw kill a bird with a BB gun. I mean, he really killed the bird with a BB gun. This was a real warrior. I suspect he's still killing things with guns. As I say, Gerald and I have very different tastes. Gerald was lecturing us on um, the prohibitions against masturbation. It was an elegant lecture. Um, the thing I remember, remember most about it, and this probably won't mean anything to you initially, was that if you do it, you'll wind up in Vanita. Now, everybody, everybody has somewhere in the, near where you grew up a state mental hospital. <laughs> For those of you in North Texas, it was Terrell. Now, to wind up in Vanita was one of the worst things that could happen because if you masturbated, you were going to lose your mind. You would go crazy. When I was um, pre-puberty, and so I had a set of instructions available to me at puberty uh, of human sexuality from Gerald Mullins. Now, that I was able to overcome, and I have sort of a different view now of what sends one to Vanita. <laughs> Among the top 10, masturbation doesn't appear. <clears throat> um, but he also told me and this freewheel Baptist church must have been pretty freewheeling because even in those days, they ordained women. Because, and I'm sorry, I don't remember her name, 
but sister somebody. I gather was a preacher at the Free Will Baptist Church said that God has in heaven a large blackboard and every person has a blackboard of his own in heaven and God is looking down watching you and every time you do something good he makes a mark on the good side and every time you do something bad he makes a mark on the bad side and if when you die you have more marks on the bad side than on the good side you go to hell I asked him what side masturbation was on. <laughs> now, part of the reason that my friend was right was that that information from Gerald Mullins, not about human sexuality, I've outgrown that one, but the one about God is in heaven counting my good deeds and my bad deeds and I will be made accountable still is in me somehow endemic to this culture that message is there it's like malaria you know it gets in your blood and you think that it's you're over it and sometimes at night you wake up in a cold sweat with a chill thinking it's probably true He is up there counting. And so I run through the computer file of my own memory and mind, wonder what the count is. I'm a priest. <laughs> In spite of high risk, I've avoided Vanita. <laughs> I remember when the preacher was preaching and as he was preaching one of the young women in the congregation in the balcony got so excited that she leapt up and when she did she fell over the balcony and caught one foot in the rail of the balcony and was hanging head down and the preacher saw that and he said a young girl has fallen off the balcony and she's hanging by one foot and her dress is over her head if any man looks God will strike him blind one young man said to the other I think I'm going to risk one eye <laughs> Theology is risky business. <laughs> I've avoided Benita in spite of some risk. So what motivates me spiritually? Is it to be me? Or is it to be what Gerald Mullins 
told me was the primary motivation for life, and that is to try to keep the balance on the side of the good so you don't go to hell. Well, I'd like to let Gerald Mullins go. Um, I have other evidence now, and I would like to free him. I'd like to do him as our Lord did with Lazarus, who was dying in the stench of his own withdrawal, unbinding, let him go. Gerald Mullins was wrong. I have it on a higher authority than Gerald Mullins that nobody's keeping score. Will you help me free Gerald Mullins? You might begin by freeing him out of your own life. That would be the thing that would be most helpful to me. Because not only has he robbed you of abundance, but you have projected him onto other people. And they have to carry his contamination for you. So be careful. We're not just talking about Gerald Mullins, but we're talking about the Gerald Mullins in you and the one that you project onto others by asking them to be perfect, which is something you yourself wake up at night in a cold sweat knowing you cannot be. So you demand it of others, your children, your parents, your priests, your friends, and most tragically, you finally demand it of yourself. Can't be, won't be. There's a second character that I would like to free this morning, and he is related in a strange but interesting and ironic way. His name is Sidney Witt. <clears throat> uh, my father was transferred from Drumright, Oklahoma to Oklahoma City when I was in the ninth grade. Actually, the winter of my eighth grade year. There was a character at John Marshall High School in Oklahoma City where I attended the largest building than I'd ever been in. Washington grade school in Drumright had eight rooms, eight grades, and a gym. John Marshall housed a junior high, senior high in a major metropolitan area, Oklahoma City, as compared to Drumright, of course. Huge building. People everywhere. There were 500 people in my class, 10% of drum right. There were people from different walks of life and socioeconomic levels and of different ethnic origins than mine. And drum right, the entire Jewish community lived in one house. In my study hall, when I was in the ninth grade, in walked Sidney Witt. He was out of central casting. 
He was out of central casting. Some of you didn't, didn't get that. <laughs> he carried a briefcase. He had black, large frame glasses. His hair was over-oiled, parted almost down the middle. He had a pencil keeper in his pocket with a pencil, or actually a pen, a ballpoint pen. In Oklahoma, it's a pen. In Anglicanism, it's a pen. Took me 20 years to get my E's and I's correct. 10 is a number. 10 is a roof. <laughs> he had a pen in his pocket, a ballpoint pen that had little runners up the side and you could do different colors <laughs> of ink. That was here. I think there were three or four colors, green, blue, black, and red, depending on the side. That was one. Then he had a pencil with a huge green eraser on it, as big as your thumb, a green eraser. He also had next to that, and I don't know why, because unless he had a typewriter perhaps in his briefcase, but he had one of those typewriter erasers with the green, small facsimile of a broom on top. <laughs> Pink, with a white eraser where the lead would be if it were a pencil. He also had, and I didn't, I never have understood this, for he was only in the ninth grade, but he had a tire pressure gauge. <laughs> You know the kind. <laughs> First day I saw him, I hadn't seen him in Drumright. I'm sure he was there. I just hadn't gotten to high school to see him. But the first time I saw him, he walked into study hall. He also had on what I'm going to call industrial strength khaki. Now, they weren't chinos, they were gray, not brown. And they looked like what one would wear in a factory. He also had on sort of factory shoes, heavy shoes, plain. My guess is the ad in the catalog said, steel-toed, in case anything <laughs> falls on your feet in the factory. He didn't wear white socks. Now, in those days, to wear black socks with black tie-up shoes with steel toes and industrial-strength khakis. They came up just below his ribs. <laughs> you know, and the belt, it had a good I suspect maybe his mother said, Sidney, you'll grow into it. <laughs> I 
And when you pull your pants up that high, you kind of have to get them over to the side, I'm told. And so his belt buckle was over here, and then it was sort of tied around, real tight. White shirt. I mean, a, what we would call in those days in junior high, a man's shirt, you know, with a collar and buttoned at the top, no tie. The day he walked into my life, Sydney, truth is stranger than fiction, I wouldn't make these things up. <laughs> Sydney walked into study hall sort of officiously, and there really was toilet paper hanging out of the back of his pants. Sydney um, was greatly derided, made fun of, uh, put on, um, ridiculed, I suspect deeply wounded by me and by my friends. And the reason is because he was everything that threatened me the most. The facts are that Sidney Witt dwelled within me, and so I had transferred my authority from my parents to my peers, and being popular was the best thing one could be. And so I took my uniform from another group, my uniform, of course, was chinos and white socks and penny loafers and Izod shirts. Still is. <laughs> I would like, <clears throat> number one, to publicly ask Sidney Witt's forgiveness for my projecting my own fear of disapproval onto him and making him live my shadow. But I'd also like to free him uh, out of my own psyche. That I guess I envied Sidney because Sidney was himself in a way that I could never be. Sidney was who he was. You could say a lot of things about Sidney, but you would never use the word pretense. Sidney was Sidney. And I was the most insecure teenager you could imagine because what I needed more than anything was approval. And I would have sold my soul for a peer group approval. Not Sydney. A man of integrity he was. Sydney was going to be Sydney, and he didn't give a damn. So in an ironic way, I want to free that in me. I want to unloose that and unbind that and let it go. Now, there is a connection, you know, between Gerald Mullins and Sydney Witt. Have you figured it out? Well, 
think it goes something like this. That all of us so desperately need approval that we've confused it with love. And we think if people approve of us because of our behavior, our stature, because of our looks, because of our resume and credentials, if people approve of us and like us, so will God. There's the connection. And Gerald and I, very different from Sydney, but the gospel says that God loves Gerald Esau, who was a hairy man, Pittman hanging around the tent with his mother, and Sidney Witt are all loved equally. Because each is a facet of my own personality. The judging, the inferior, and the one who desperately needs to be liked. So I sort of wanted to free them all, let them go, unbind them, let them loose. As I end, I do have <coughs> a couple of fears, though. What if Gerald Mullins became a preacher? <laughs> What if Sidney Witt became a preacher? And those are the two things I fear the most. Is one, a preacher who's telling you you're going to go to hell or Vanita. <laughs> or a preacher who's a nerd. <laughs> Sounds to me like I'm not through. I still got some stuff to work on. <laughs>